Due to the graphic nature of these crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of violence, murder, and statutory rape. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. Sonia Fortin's hands shook as she pressed the receiver to her ear. Never in her most terrifying nightmares had she imagined getting a call like this. Not quite one year ago, she remembered watching her best friend, Pam, marry Prince Charming. Sonia could still picture the happy couple, glowing with love. They had dreams and plans for the future. Greg couldn't wait to buy a house and start having kids. The two of them were clearly blessed, floating above the crowd in a bubble of joy. Or so it seemed. Sonia could barely understand her friend on the other end of the line. There had been an accident, maybe a robbery. There was blood. Someone was dead. No one, and certainly not Sonia, could have ever imagined what happened next. Hi, I'm Lainey Hobbs, and this is Crimes of Passion, a Spotify original from Parcast. In the legal definition, a crime of passion is a violent crime that occurs in the throes of extreme emotion, leaving no time to reflect on the consequences. But in this show, we explore how passionate relationships sometimes lead us to criminal activity. How does a husband and wife become killer and victim, or killer and co-conspirator? If there's a thin line between love and hate, what manipulates our relationships into deadly results? You can find episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. This week, we'll discuss Pamela and Greg Smart and how their seemingly perfect relationship fell apart. What started as an extramarital affair led to a tragedy that completely upended their small New Hampshire town. Next week, we'll talk about the deadly consequences that followed and the unprecedented court case that struggled to find justice when all was said and done. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. 
The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. Pamela Smart started off her life on the right foot. She was a happy-go-lucky kid from a good home. Her upbringing was classic Americana, surrounded by idyllic covered bridges and accented by a breathtaking landscape. A small-town life with all its charms. As a teenager, Pam had big dreams. After high school, she attended Florida State University. Her plan was to study broadcast journalism in the hopes of becoming the next Barbara Walters. In college, she remained an overachiever. While working full-time in addition to her demanding course load, she hosted two programs on the campus radio station. Her favorite was The Rock Show, which earned her the moniker The Maiden of Metal. She definitely looked the part with the big hair and small skirts. She loved the popular bands of the day from Motley Crue to Guns N' Roses. But her all-time favorite group was Van Halen. Despite loving the music and the rock and roll look though, Pam wasn't a partier. In fact, it was well known in her circle of friends that she didn't date at all. That was until she met a friend of a friend while back home in New Hampshire over Christmas break. He introduced himself as Greg. At first, Pam wasn't particularly interested. He seemed nice and friendly to be sure, and she couldn't deny he was handsome. Everyone seemed to know and like him. She watched as he moved through the party like a frontman through a crowd of groupies. His curls fell all the way to his shoulders, wild and untamed like David Lee Roth's. He swigged his beer and smiled wide at her. As the night wore on, she found herself increasingly drawn to him. She was nervous, but excited. No boy had made her feel like this before, like she wanted to be around him as much as possible. She tried to flirt, but she'd only ever seen her friends doing it. She'd skipped out on relationships up until that point, but Greg was distracting. They seemed to keep finding each other at the party. Not only did they like the same music, but Pam was thrilled when Greg proclaimed Van Halen the best band of all time. He really was the one. By the end of the night, the two of them were joking around like old friends. The more Pam got to know Greg Smart, the more she fell for him. Never without a smile for friends and strangers alike, Greg was outgoing and loved to have fun. Unlike Pam, he was an average student. Though he graduated high school in 1983, he had no aspirations toward college. He had the look and some of the attitude of a bad boy. But under the long rocker hair and leather jackets, he was known to be a softie. From the moment he and Pam met, friends remember the couple as inseparable. For Greg, it was love at first sight. When Pam went back to college in Florida, they tried to make the relationship work long distance. But Pam's busy schedule of classes, work, and extracurriculars threatened to smother the sparks. Before I continue with Pam and Greg's psychology, please note, I am not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but I have done a lot of research for the show. According to clinical psychologist Amy Deramis, 
Love has serious impacts on brain chemistry, and long-distance relationships in particular have a unique effect. Dramatic increases in serotonin and dopamine, both of which are responsible for mood regulation, occur when someone is first falling in love. When one of the partners moves away, especially during the initial stages of the relationship, it can feel like going through chemical withdrawal. This leads to changes in mood and behavior and can cause depression. Greg was likely feeling these effects keenly. Pam at least had school and work to distract her, but he didn't have many prospects in New Hampshire. Looking for a change and to be with the woman he loved, he moved to Florida to stay with Pam until she graduated. Surprisingly, he fit into her world nicely. Being the outgoing guy he was, her friends quickly became his friends too. He probably encouraged Pam to go to a few parties and enjoy her college experience before it was all over. Even so, Greg had never lived outside of a small town and Pam was the only one he truly knew in Tallahassee. Even in the throes of new love, that would be a lot of pressure for a new relationship. Which may have been the reason Pam graduated a year early in 1988. Almost immediately, the couple moved back to Derry, New Hampshire to be closer to family and a more familiar lifestyle. Greg soon got a job selling insurance at the same place his father worked. Adulthood seemed to come overnight for the couple. Greg knew he needed to provide for Pam and the family they planned on starting. He cut off his flowing hair and traded in his leather jacket for a suit and tie. Meanwhile, Pam was hired as a consultant for the local school district. She was put in charge of the media center at a high school in the neighboring town of Seabrook. It wasn't exactly broadcast journalism, but she saw it as a stepping stone toward her eventual dream. The next year, Pam and Greg tied the knot and moved into a condo near Greg's parents. They got a dog they named Halen after their favorite band. It was the lone remnant of their rocker days. The two of them settled slowly into the rhythms and routine of adult life, putting down roots in the community. It was supposed to be the beginning of happily ever after, but Pam soon learned why fairy tales never included what happened ever after. It turned out married life could be pretty boring, especially for a 20-something fresh out of college. The days quickly started to bleed together. Get up, go to work, come home, go to sleep, repeat. Derry might have been a nice town to live in, but it wasn't exactly the place someone might move if they were hoping to make it big in media. The local TV station, WMUR, was a tiny David up against Goliaths fighting for viewership in the Boston market. It wasn't exactly a hotbed of opportunity for an inexperienced reporter. Though her job as a media consultant paid well, and was even fulfilling at times, it wasn't the career Pam had spent years working for, not even close. As Greg seemed to settle into their dairy life for the long haul, Pam still had dreams she wasn't willing to give up. The problems kept coming as time went on. Selling insurance meant Greg's job started when most others ended, so he could pitch people at their homes. His schedule was practically the opposite of Pam's, which meant the newlyweds didn't actually see much of each other during the week. 
Pam was usually in bed before Greg got home. The only thing she had to look forward to was waking up next to him in the morning. That was until one morning in December when she woke up and Greg wasn't there. Pam slapped around the nightstand to silence her alarm clock before rolling over to give her husband a good morning kiss. His pillow was empty. She rubbed the sleep from her eyes and looked around. It looked like Greg's side of the bed hadn't been slept in at all that night. She called out for him, thinking maybe he'd gotten up early or fallen asleep in another room for some reason. There was no response. Pam got up and looked around the condo. Her husband wasn't anywhere to be found. Calls to his friends and office didn't turn up much. She was beginning to truly panic when just before she had to leave for school, he finally called the house. He'd been out drinking with a friend from work and thought it would be safer to crash with his coworker instead of driving home. He was sorry, he'd see her tonight. Pam was so relieved he was okay, she didn't think twice about the story. When she got home from work that night, however, Greg was on their white leather sofa with his head in his hands. Pam could immediately tell he was about to drop a bombshell. She just hoped she was prepared. When we return, Pam and Greg's relationship starts to crumble. Hi listeners, it's Vanessa from Parcast. If you haven't had a chance to check out my series, Mythology, you don't know what you're missing. Heroes, gods, monsters, and mayhem. This podcast has it all. Every Tuesday, take a deep dive back in time, exploring the history, origins, and meaning behind the myths that have shaped the earth. Each episode of Mythology dramatizes a story pulled from beliefs from around the world, giving insight into how our ancestors saw the universe and how those stories resonate in our lives today. Recent episodes include the epic battle between Hercules and Theseus, the grieving spirit known as La Llorona, and a treacherous journey to the land of the dead. Catch new episodes every Tuesday and binge the classics anytime. Follow Mythology free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. The honeymoon was over quickly for newlyweds Pam and Greg Smart, Though they'd only been married for six months, their mismatched schedules created a rift that couldn't be mended anytime soon. 22-year-old Pam knew they were drifting apart, but even so, she wasn't prepared to hear in December of 1989 that her first and only love spent the night with another woman. Though Greg gave all the right excuses, claiming it was a one-time thing that meant nothing, his confession changed everything Pam thought she knew about their life together. 
Suddenly, she couldn't trust anything, not even herself. She felt there must have been something wrong with her for a man like Greg to cheat. Plagued by insecurity and doubt, she had to find a way to move forward. She wasn't the only one. In 2008, researcher Stephen R.H. Beach, Ernest Angelis, and K. Daniel O'Leary published an article on the impact of extramarital sex on depression and commitment. It found that couples who noted extramarital sex as an issue also reported higher levels of depression and lower levels of marital commitment. The interesting part about this study, though, was that the partner engaged in the extramarital sex tended to show higher levels of depression. This could be part of the reason these individuals also confessed to feeling lower levels of commitment. If Greg was feeling depressed about his actions and pulled further away from Pam as a result, it certainly would have made things worse between them. It's unclear whether Pam told anyone about Greg's affair. Given their reputation as the perfect couple, it wouldn't be surprising if she kept it to herself. The shame of having been cheated on so early in her married life would have been intensely isolating. Pam would have been in search of solace, desperate for validation and not thinking rationally. To top it all off, despite the troubles in her personal life, Pam still had to show up to work and act as if everything was normal. Part of her job involved running the media center at the high school in the neighboring town of Seabrook. Pam was also one of the faculty mentors in Project Self-Esteem, a required program that helped to teach students about careers in media. It sought to build the children up by providing them with a creative outlet. Since Pam was younger than most of the faculty, she was pretty popular with the students. Like her intern, Cecilia Pierce, Cecilia had trouble fitting in with other kids, but was determined to work in television when she grew up. She looked up to Pam more like a big sister than as a teacher. Many of the other students did too. Pam was beautiful, had a college degree, and didn't talk down to them like the other adults in their life. 15-year-old Billy Flynn was another student Pam mentored. Unlike Cecilia, he wasn't one of the good ones. He was a tough kid from a rough part of town. Billy and his buddies were well known to the local police department. They reportedly occasionally stole car stereos or even motorbikes to sell for drug money. One day, looking for opportunities to get the boys involved in something constructive, Pam heard about a contest held by the Florida Department of Citrus. The objective was to get students to make an orange juice commercial. The top prize was a trip to Disney World. Pam knew that Billy had an interest in photography and videography. Along with Cecilia, Pam and Billy decided to work together on the Orange Juice Project. They filmed at various off-campus locations with Billy as a cameraman. Since he was an aspiring musician too, he also wrote a song for the video. As the three of them bonded, the project started to become just an excuse for them to get together outside of school. As time went on, they felt more like peers than students supervised by a mentor. At first, Pam didn't know what to think of Billy and his friends. They weren't the type of crowd she ran with in high school. They were honest-to-God bad boys with histories of run-ins with the cops and easy access to drugs and alcohol. 
It might have been exciting for her to feel like she was finally living out her rocker dreams. The Maiden of Metal was back. Billy even played guitar and appreciated her taste in music. That kind of attention was flattering to Pam, especially coming on the heels of Greg's affair. At home, she felt like a failure as a wife. Meanwhile, Billy followed her around like a puppy dog. He made her feel special and smart and beautiful. Most importantly, he was an attentive listener. Caught up in her developing feelings, Pam was keenly aware of the power imbalance between her and Billy. He was just 15 and she was 22. She was supposed to be his mentor, but the attention was just what she needed to soothe her raging insecurities. Soon, she was seeing more of Billy than she did her husband. Whenever Greg wasn't home, she started inviting Cecilia and Billy over. They had loud parties together, drinking and smoking pot. One evening, the three had a movie night. Pam asked if either of the teens had seen Nine and a Half Weeks, a salacious film about a fast-developing and highly sexual love affair. After the movie, she and Billy snuck upstairs. Pam had sex with Billy, committing statutory rape. In the days afterward, Pam couldn't believe her own behavior. When she was in the moment, she didn't think twice about anything. But when faced with the reality of confessing what she was doing, the shame was unbearable. There was no excuse for her actions. She couldn't find relief. According to the University of Rochester Health Encyclopedia, as far as brain development is concerned, adolescence lasts from ages 10 to 24. Until then, the prefrontal cortex, the area of the brain responsible for cognitive processes, is not fully developed. This can lead to poor planning and decision-making. The adolescent brain processes everything through the amygdala instead, also known as the emotional center of the brain. Teenagers perceive everything as feeling, so when asked what they were thinking after making impulsive decisions, they often can't answer. They really weren't thinking at all. Although she wasn't a teenager herself, Pam was 22, putting her squarely within the same developmental range. This does not excuse her behavior. As a legal adult in a position of authority, Pam was committing statutory rape and taking advantage of Billy's less developed prefrontal cortex. Billy was less capable than Pam at calling upon the executive functions of his brain. As a definitive child in the situation, he was acting on pure feeling. Pam preyed on Billy for about two months from around February to April. During this period, the two of them had sex at least four times. Eventually, Pam couldn't take the anxiety and guilt anymore, nor could she justify her behavior. She told Billy that she cared for him deeply, but she had a husband who she also loved. She needed to focus on making her marriage work. Billy was heartbroken. His young brain, already wired for feeling, was also flooded with those early love hormones and neurotransmitters. He didn't understand how Pam could say she loved him and yet refused to leave her husband. 
She was his first love, the only girl who had made him feel this much. Without her, he was headed for a monumental chemical crash. He thought he belonged to Pam and Pam alone. He would do anything it took for them to be together. Anything. Meanwhile, Pam claimed she did her best to put the incident behind her and focus on her work. On the night of May 1st, 1990, she didn't get home until around 10.30 p.m. The school board meeting had gone long, as usual. When she pulled up to her house, she noticed the lights were off. Immediately, things felt strange. Greg's truck was in the drive, but the place looked like it was empty. She went to unlock the front door, fumbling a little in the dark. As she started to turn the key, the door pushed open slightly. It was already ajar. Pam called out to Greg and reached for the light. She froze the moment it came on. In front of her, on the pale blue carpet, her husband lay completely still face down. Adrenaline flooded Pam's system. Around Greg's body, she saw the house in shambles. A speaker was missing from its stand, and the living room was ransacked. Pam fled to their closest neighbor, banging on the door and screaming for someone to call 911. She stayed outside while the woman called, screaming for help, for Greg to wake up. She wanted to check on her husband, but was terrified that someone was still in the house. She was hysterical. When the paramedics arrived, they only confirmed the worst. Greg Smart wasn't knocked out. He was dead. The police initially believed it had been a burglary gone wrong. All of the Smarts' belongings were trashed, their furniture tipped over, their drawers emptied. Instead of feeling like an answer, though, the theory only broached more questions. Greg's wallet was still in his pocket, and he still had his solid gold wedding ring on his finger. Only some extremely incompetent burglars would have left those behind. There were no signs of forced entry on any of the doors or windows either. When local homicide detective Daniel Pelletier arrived at the scene, authorities didn't have much to go on. Whoever had murdered Greg Smart had done it quickly and cleanly. He appeared to have been shot execution style. The shooter had even wrapped his head in a blue towel beforehand, probably to muffle the gunshot. Police did find a joint in Greg's car. Neighbors reported some loud partying going on around the time of his death, which was out of place in the well-to-do neighborhood. Those two facts made the detective wonder if Greg had been involved in some drug deal gone sour. But a thorough search didn't turn up any other illicit substances or paraphernalia. While law enforcement examined the scene, a devastated Pam went to stay at her parents' house. After hours of not hearing anything, she demanded to speak with the detectives. She wanted to know what was happening. At around two in the morning, Detective Pelletier agreed to interview Pam at the station. He asked the usual questions, 
Pam told him the last time she heard Greg's voice was when she called to tell him she would be home late from the school board meeting. Pelletier then asked her about the events that unfolded after she found the body. He wondered why she wasn't the one to call 911 and why she didn't approach Greg to check on him herself. Pam told him that since there wasn't any blood, she just assumed he'd been knocked out cold. When she looked up and saw the state of her house, she went next door in case the assailant was still inside. She seemed to have an answer ready for all of their questions. Detective Pelletier found her demeanor odd. Usually, according to him, victims or their families have more questions than they do answers. In his experience, when people believe their loved one is severely injured rather than dead, they check to make sure. He found it strange that Pam, however, ran away without taking a close look at her husband's body. As they continued investigating, authorities heard rumors that Greg had a gambling problem. He and Pam had been known to spend time in Atlantic City. This, plus the way he was killed, could have pointed to some involvement in organized crime. But that lead, like the drug theory before it, quickly fizzled out. Deary, New Hampshire wasn't the type of town where murders just happened. But try as they might, the police couldn't come up with a motive, so much of the picture was still missing. Because the cause of death was clear, however, Greg's body was released so the family could have a timely funeral. On May 4th, he was laid to rest in a local cemetery. 22-year-old Pam was left overwhelmed. She had lost her partner, her life as she knew it, and the future they had planned for. No one could tell her how to deal with the unimaginable loss or the avalanche of attention headed her way. Things were only about to get more difficult. Local media quickly picked up on the story and ran with it. Though the police had already discounted the theories, the potential for drug or mob involvement was too good for small-town journalists to pass up. Bill Spencer, a reporter at scrappy underdog station WMUR, got intense pressure from his bosses to dig up whatever he could. They had to break the story before anyone from Boston could get their hands on it. On May 7th, what should have been the Smart's first wedding anniversary, Spencer interviewed Pam about the murder. According to him, she was very composed and put together during filming. She seemed comfortable on camera with her hair and makeup perfectly in place. At one point, he said, she offered to get the top layer of her wedding cake still in the refrigerator for a poignant moment in the story. Remembering her journalistic ambitions, Spencer couldn't help but think that Pam Smart was acting more like a reporter herself than a grieving widow. Coming up, the investigation into Greg Smart's murder takes a dramatic turn. Now, back to our story. On the night of May 1st, 1990, Greg Smart was murdered. His wife, 22-year-old Pam, found his body in the hallway of their home and alerted police. At first, authorities believed the incident could have been the result of a burglary gone wrong, but didn't have any solid leads. Pam worried that the case would go cold if she didn't keep interest in Greg's story high. 
she gave an interview to local journalist Bill Spencer on May 7th. During the talk, she provided details about the case, including how the crime scene looked that night. Police were furious that she spoke to the press during an open investigation. The detectives decided that if Pam was going to give interviews, they could no longer share details with her. However, this wasn't made explicitly clear to Pam. From her perspective, the police seemed to suddenly run out of information to give. She continued to accept interviews to keep her husband in the news. Meanwhile, police struggled to make progress. For a while, there was simply no evidence that anyone would intentionally kill Greg Smart. But on May 14th, that all changed. An anonymous call came into the Derry Police Department for Detective Pelletier. When he picked up the phone, a female voice spoke. She told the detective that she overheard her coworker at a local Italian restaurant talking about a woman who was trying to have her husband murdered. According to the anonymous tipper, the police needed to talk to 17-year-old Cecilia Pierce, Pam's devoted intern at the media center. Officers got to work locating Cecilia and on May 21st conducted their first interview with her. When Detective Pelletier asked her about the anonymous tip, she denied ever saying anything about a murder. Pam was smart and kind and most importantly, her friend. The majority of what they got from Cecilia was inconsequential or outright denial. But one thing she said stuck out. According to her, she had stayed over at Pam's condo in the week leading up to the murder. But detectives had already asked Pam for the names of anyone who had accessed the home within the past month to eliminate potential fingerprints. Cecilia's name never came up. It was possible Pam had simply forgotten, but she'd seemed totally on top of everything else. She even made sure to give police the name of her water delivery man just in case. It made Detective Pelletier wonder why she would have lied about Cecilia staying over. The investigation was starting to move forward again, but the case still wasn't cracked. Then, on June 10, 1990, everything seemed to fall into place. That day, a man named Vance Latimer Sr. paid a visit to the police station. Mr. Latimer Sr. told detectives that he'd been informed his gun might have been involved in Greg Smart's murder. At first, Mr. Latimer thought the kid who warned him, Ralph Welch, was just playing a prank. But when he went to check on his 38 pistol, he noticed something strange. The weapon was wiped completely clean, but he hadn't tended to it in a while. Detectives sent the pistol to the ballistics lab for testing. Unbelievably, it came back as a match for the exact gun that had killed Greg Smart. The on-call detective, Barry Cherowitz, brought in Ralph Welch for questioning. In a videotaped interview, the teen told officers that his friends, Van Slatemy Jr., who everyone called JR, Pete Randall, and Billy Flynn bragged about killing Greg Smart. When he overheard them talking in JR's bedroom, Welch confronted the other boys. At first, they claimed they were lying, just talking tough. Not convinced, Welch left the room and pretended to walk away. Standing by the door, he again overheard them laughing and chatting about the murder. 
They even talked about who might be next on their list. Welch burst back in to let them know they were caught red-handed. That was when Billy spilled the entire tale. He said that he and Pete snuck into the Smart's empty home and waited for Greg to return on the night of May 1st. When Greg arrived, the two of them jumped him at the door and Billy shot him in the head. Horrified his friends could do such a thing, Ralph knew he couldn't keep the information to himself. When Detective Cherowitz asked Welch if the boys had told him why they did it, Welch said they were promised $500 each from the insurance money by Pam. Detective Cherowitz's eyes widened. He sat up in his chair, then leaned toward Welch and asked him to clarify who Pam was. The kid kept his eyes on his hands, but answered without hesitation. He meant Pamela Smart, Greg's wife. After the interview, investigators started looking into Billy and his friends, Pete and JR. It wasn't too hard considering all three boys had police records. Authorities found they were all students at the school where Pam worked, along with her intern, Cecilia Pierce. Not only that, but they learned Billy and JR closely collaborated with Pam as a part of Project Self-Esteem. With more pieces of the puzzle finally out on the table, investigators felt like they were finally getting an idea of the whole picture. But there was still nothing pointing to why Pam Smart would want her husband killed in the first place. When they followed up on Welch's tip about the life insurance money, they discovered that Greg had a $140,000 policy that Pam had recently collected. It seemed odd that a 24-year-old would have such a large policy, but Greg was in the insurance business after all. With that, detectives had more than enough information to arrest the boys. It didn't take long for word to get out. Because they were in such a small town, everybody already knew Mr. Latimy and Ralph Welch had spoken to police before the warrants were even issued. Billy rushed to JR's house when he heard the news. They needed to figure out what to do fast. He tried to calm himself down on the way over. Everything had gone perfectly according to plan. They'd covered their tracks perfectly. They were totally going to get away with it. Pam was so close to being with him forever. Now he, Pete, and JR were all freaking out. The police were probably coming for them right this minute. As Billy's mind spun, the other boys looked to him for a plan. He was the one who had asked them to do this. It was his mess they were in, and it was up to him to get them out. The options, as he saw them, were to hide or run. But he couldn't leave without Pam. Otherwise, all of it was for nothing. When Mr. Latimy got home from the station, the boys were still arguing. He told them not to be stupid. They couldn't hide from this. If they ran, it would follow them forever. The best thing would be to turn themselves in. Billy knew he was asking a lot of his friends, first to help him commit murder and now to go to jail for it. The good news was they were all minors at most, they'd spend a couple years in juvie and be out by the time they were 18. There was no way Pam would refuse him then, 
after seeing how much he was willing to do for her. How could she? On June 11th, news broke that three suspects had been arrested in connection to the murder case. The police withheld the boy's name from the press because they were minors, but their mugshots did become available and were circulated widely. Bill Spencer from WMUR went to the local high school to report on the connection for himself. There, he also identified the boys and the fact that they worked closely with Pam. Immediately, he and his team went to Pam's house to get her reaction to the news. Spencer was probably hoping to get a breakdown or at least some show of emotion out of Pam Smart, who was usually stoic. This time, however, when he knocked on her door, she refused to talk to him. Through just a crack, not even enough for his cameraman to get a decent shot of her face, Pam told him she couldn't comment on the news. She said she was too devastated. Spencer couldn't figure her out. He thought she'd be emotional, but also relieved to finally have some answers. He wondered why exactly she was so devastated. Thanks again for tuning into Crimes of Passion. We will be back Wednesday with part two of Pam and Billy's story. We'll cover the finale of the murder investigation, as well as the never-before-seen media circus that surrounded the trial. You can find more episodes of Crimes of Passion, as well as all of ParCast's other podcasts on Spotify or your favorite podcast directory. We'll see you next time, when true love meets true crime. Crimes of Passion is a Spotify original from ParCast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound design by Trent Williamson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Aaron Larson. This episode of Crimes of Passion was written by Megan Hannum, with writing assistance by Terrell Wells, fact-checking by Haley Milligan, and research by Mickey Taylor and Chelsea Wood. I'm Lainey Hobbs. (laughs) ¶¶